Welcome to Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. My name is Josh Lyons. I've been listening to Hardcore and Punk since 1995. I have book shows, put out a fanzine, run a record label, and now I'm doing a podcast. This is the Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. Welcome to episode 25. As always, you can find us on the web at EnterpriseHardcorePodcast.com. There you will find links to all the streaming information as well as social media. Uh, so for episode 25, we actually have a pretty uh, cool theme, uh, and I swear it was not my idea. Uh, we have Rob Antonucci coming back onto the podcast, and he's actually going to interview me for this episode. Uh, I'm sure I'll probably end up asking him a couple questions too, but the main idea that, again, was his idea is uh, for him to interview me. So uh, with all that being said, how's everything going for you tonight, Rob? Good. Really good. I'm, um, I'm happy I get to do this. And I think it's, it's good for the people who've been listening to it pretty consistently to, I mean, they've got little glimpses here and there of kind of what you're about and what you do and your intro, you kind of explain sort of what you've done with, with hardcore in this general area, but I wanted to ask some specifics. A couple of these questions too, that I'm going to ask you tonight, I don't remember the answers to, and I'm legitimately curious. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to it. So to introduce myself, I'm Rob Antonucci, uh, depending on who you talk to. And if you've listened to this podcast, you could either call me Rob or Bob or Nooch or, or whatever. So I have a, a, a plethora of different names, uh, but I've been uh, playing hardcore for a long time. No, known Josh for a long time too. Been playing in bands in uh, Buffalo and Rochester through the years and uh, I'm happy to have this opportunity. If you want to get to know me a little bit more, you can listen to episode one. Uh, I was actually the first interview that Josh did, which I really appreciate. So I'm, I'm glad that I get this opportunity to take over as guest host. So we're going to turn the tables. I'm going to take over as host for this episode, and I'm going to be interviewing Josh Lyons himself. So he is correct. I am the one that came up with this concept because I had some questions I wanted to ask him. So I'm going to start in kind of sort of where you left off when you were talking to Ben last episode. So if anyone that didn't listen to the last one that if they're going in order that would be 24 or 23 josh 24 okay so if you're listening to 24 um there's kind of a funny story about you in eighth grade which uh is kind of funny because i teach eighth graders so i was kind of putting myself in, the, in that situation a little bit thinking about kids in my class listening to hardcore i wish that they did but uh they definitely don't i uh i put on a nirvana song the other day and they they said what's this heavy metal turn it off i went okay so whatever so can you elaborate a little bit more on how you got into hardcore with your buddy ben in eighth grade well man first of all imagine being like whatever age that is like 13 or 14 and not not appreciating nirvana oh, that's um, my daughter's age now. but um so i was thinking about this when when you you and i were talking about this before the uh the interview tonight um i think we all kind of throw uh sometimes the term hardcore around loosely under the same umbrella and i guess Technically, what we got into, uh, which would have been eighth grade, which would have been like 94, 95, was more like punk rock and then hardcore. And that was around the time, for me, uh, not as much Ben, but for me, like Rancid and Green Day and stuff like that was blowing up. Uh, all those albums came out around the same time, uh, including Offspring with that Smash album. Um, so I listened to a lot of that stuff for like the first few months of eighth grade. And then him and I had been talking like local, because there's a record store near my house called Record Time. So we would talk about how they would sell vinyl there, um, which obviously now vinyl is popular again. But in the mid in the mid '90s, it was still it was still popular. But it, even then, it kind of had that vintage feel. You know what I mean? So it was kind of the quirky aspect of buying records. 
So I would go to that record time store, and uh, a guy, Rob Falardo, that I've referenced on this, on this pod, podcast quite a few times, uh, he worked there and played in a lot of local bands. Um, so I bought a bunch of 7-inches there. Uh, the first local 7-inch I got was actually a band called Nod, who definitely aren't hardcore or punk. They're more just like a sonic youth, like weird. I, I don't even know if you compare them to them, but I, I don't really listen to them now. But that was the first 7-inch I bought. And then from there... Uh, we I, I ended up getting a seven inch by a band you and I have talked about in the past, uh, Fat Day, and that was that was probably the closest thing to hardcore that I heard in the beginning. Which you know they those guys are all, all over the map musically. Like they play like math rock, you know, hardcore, yeah. just a bunch of different stuff. But a couple of their seven inches are, are like really fast and kind of hardcore. And then Ben had been kind of getting more into that kind of stuff, like the really fast hardcore. So around that time, him and I kind of started really getting into it. And then I can remember at the end of like ninth. Yeah, this would be this would be like ninth grade now, like fast forwarding like a year, uh, getting more into like hardcore, like '96, uh, early '96. I, I remember mowing the lawn at the house I grew up on Wilcox Street, uh, which we'll probably get into that at some point because I, I I put on some shows there. Uh, at that house, I remember mowing the lawn and listening to like Minor Threat and Gorilla Biscuits. So now we're talking like '96, which would have been like a year and a half after I had been exposed to all that stuff, and I'd probably already been to a couple. You know, random local shows here and there. Uh, Moment of Truth, I had seen him play a couple times. So at that point, I kind of was getting more exposed to hardcore and kind of realizing that that was kind of the direction I wanted to, to push myself towards, you know? Now, that's interesting, too, because listening to your other podcasts, I was like hearing whether or not people get into hardcore through metal or they get into it through punk. And I've been watching recently the uh, It's a New York Hardcore documentary. I don't know if you've seen that one. It's like... It's a little bit older, but they do interviews with all different people and they talk about how metal started coming in and how it sort of changed hardcore. And then Mike uh, Judge got mad and he he didn't want anything to do with it. And then kind of hardcore morphed and anthrax came in. I don't know if you've seen that one before, but it's really interesting because now I, I, I like to think about, okay, you personally, you started listening to punk more. I started with metal and I started with Slayer and Metallica and that brought me into hardcore. It's It's... I think that's a great thing that we can bring punk, like people can get into it through punk, you can get into it through metal, and you kind of all end up in the same place. That's great. Yeah, and it's kind of funny because I never really listened to metal at all growing up. Like, I always I always appreciated Metallica. I mean, who couldn't appreciate some of that stuff? It was, you know, um, but I, I, I remember even like 97 more when like when we started going more to like Syracuse and Buffalo and you would go to more like, like see different bands and stuff and... I forget who it was, but they broke into like a Slayer song in the middle of their set, and I was just like, "Fuck this crap!" You know what, what I mean? Year like, was it? That was probably like '97, you know. And Kid Gorgeous did. I remember. I think yeah. that was Kid Gorgeous. They, it, they used to play it, uh, Angel of Death or Raining Blood. I think it was them. I think it was Raining Blood, so it could have been them. But I remember a couple of bands doing it around that time, and, and it just wasn't really my thing. But you know, as I've gotten older. I appreciate more of the heavy stuff, and I think I've mentioned to you and a few other people, uh, like Sarah, my girlfriend, doesn't really like hardcore, but uh, some of the stuff when I played it for her, she's like, that sounds like Metallica, and then, like, uh, it's a band, Bitter End, from Texas, and uh, when I, when I was, yeah, but when I was listening to the radio a couple years back, they had a Metallica song on, and I forget what song it is, it's not, it's probably pre-Master of Puppets, it's one of their older songs, I'm pretty sure, but I could be wrong about that, but either way, there's like this intro to the song and I was just like, man, that sounds like a bitter end song. You know what I mean? So I kind of see more where she's coming from. But for me, it was more punk rock though. Getting back to the original point. Um, you know, I, I listened to, like I said, minor threat and gorilla biscuits. And then I got really into all the stuff like, uh, on Ian, Ian from minor threats label discord, 
all those early yep. releases, like Teen Idols, all the compilations with like the seven inches and stuff. Uh, I feel like Kevin Wilcox and I probably talked about that a little bit because him and I both yep. have kind of similar interests uh, as far as that kind of stuff goes. And you've talked about this in your other interviews before, but so now you're you're into hardcore. You started going to shows. When when did you start going to shows that you figured out you wanted to book shows or you wanted to um, or did that happen naturally or you just make a choice one day I'm gonna book a show I want to bring in this band or this band? Can you elaborate on that? Well, I think a lot of people that were around the hardcore scene uh, anytime pre-internet especially, but definitely before like Hot Topic and all that stuff kind of got more involved with it would relate to the fact and it's even still like that a little bit now but not quite as much because you got it's just the connection is so much bigger uh, but back then you know every city probably had promoters but there weren't a lot of people booking like small like DIY touring hardcore bands and like to think about Rochester especially like I said I got into it around like 95 96 and there was kind of like a few bands who had been around were kind of breaking up and not doing as much around here so there weren't really that many people booking shows or doing shows here so it was kind of one of those things where you kind of fall into it naturally, like you, like part of the question you asked where, you know, I had a lot of bands I wanted to book. And back then, as we've talked about on, on a couple episodes, uh, and again, anybody our age or, or older can relate to, we didn't, email was kind of uh, not really, you know, as, 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 as much as it is now, how you can just in the click, click your fingers, like you had to write letters and call people. You know, I, I've listened to uh, uh, Joe Hardcore from This Is Hardcore has got a podcast, and I forget what the dude's name that he referenced, but it's like an old New Jersey hardcore dude. And I was thinking about that because I was like, damn, I talked to that dude on the phone a bunch of times just about trading records and booking shows, and that's and that's what we did back then. Like, like now, like Where did with, you find those numbers? Oh, uh, well, that dude had put out some seven inches because uh, New Jersey hardcore, like aside from sketchy, you know, Rick to Life, there was also this dude. Uh, I, I forget what the bands he put out. Some of those shows. Yeah, I forget what the yeah, band's... played 25 to Life in New Jersey a couple times. Yeah, I can imagine what that was probably like, the, you know. <laughs> um, but I was just... And even Rick to Life, you know, there's another character that you, you know, I, I definitely interacted with and, and did that Come and Correct show. and But that was more with email and stuff. But, you know, getting back to my original point, um, so there was a couple years there where I would kind of just book a couple random, like, local shows here and there, and then... All this was done via, like, either letters or just calling, like, local people about booking their bands. And then an incident happened in early, early 98, which we won't delve into too much, but uh, people who are uh, from the area or familiar with uh, hardcore uh, around that time are familiar with what I'm talking about. And I, I booked a show, which some pretty crazy shit ended up happening. So I kind of decided after that that I didn't really want to book a lot of hardcore shows. Uh, that was like late January '98, so it was probably was about. The integrity show? No, that was uh, this was in the I Hate You show uh, out in Riverton. Okay. Um, so probably for like the next year or so, I didn't really book a lot of shows. You know, the occasion we had the occasional show in my basement and the occasional like VFW hall show, but then it was around like '99 or so, like. Uh, uh, there's a really good crop of bands coming up. Just I feel like you know me being born in like '81, like people from like that were born in like '79, '80, '81, like a lot of their bands were kind of starting to come together around that time. I mean, within that year, American Nightmare, No Warning, Carry On, wh whether those bands were either already together or, or getting established, you know, it all kind of happened around then. And those were kind of the bands that 
I wanted to book all those bands, and nobody here was re- like there was people here booking shows, and people around this area booking shows, but nobody really booking the kind of shows that I wanted to book, where it was like diverse, you know what I mean? And that like that that early Bridge Nine sound too was was really popping off for me, so I really wanted to bring those bands here too. So that's kind of how that all ended up happening. And then and again now we're kind of pushing forward a couple of years because this is more like ninety nine two thousand that I'm talking about here now. But this is when everything really kind of started coming together booking shows and that's when i was like i had seen again i i a lot of these things we're going to reference are you know people i've interviewed on other episodes but chris ring was doing some pretty good shit in buffalo and matt dunn had started booking some pretty good shows in syracuse so at that point i was like kind of influenced by those guys and we went to a couple shows in albany too for that matter where i was like i kind of saw the way things were put together and that's when i was like I could do this, you know, I could do some pretty, some pretty good stuff here, some pretty big shows, and I, and I would definitely network and talk to, to Chris and Matt pretty frequently, and bend their ear, and get a lot of suggestions, and that's when you and I became pretty good friends, and you and I would definitely talk ideas quite a bit, so now we're talking like 2000, 2001, you know, and that's when, that's when Enterprise Hardcore really took off, you know. So, let's, let's rewind a little bit, because this kind of has to do with my next question, is I was going to ask what came first, but I remember... Uh, the right path, which is the zine that you did, that was honestly really fantastic. Uh, I remember reading that thing, taking a dump for months. I read the same issue over and over. Uh, but that issue was your American Nightmare issue, and that kind of leads perfectly into what you just said with that Bridge Nine sound. That was definitely always your thing. So from there, I I feel like you started booking more bands because you were really getting into it a whole lot more. How many issues of the zine did you do, and can you just talk about? Uh, the right path a little bit i don't want to skip that well to rewind even a little bit more not to to you know go too far into it but i had actually done a couple zines before that uh mainly uh no effects sucks and uh discombobulated over topanga um so those two fanzines were more like punk rock like like really crappy layout not like the right path ever had a great layout until obviously the last few few issues where other people were doing the layout but anyways so i had done like like diy punk rock fanzines and like traded with people and stuff and that and then uh you know around like 97 i was getting more into like straight edge hardcore and and more you know the stuff that that would become more signature for you know the right path and enterprise hardcore which those two names kind of i'll get to that in a second but those two names definitely combined and that's how the whole name uh sprouted off of but anyways um so yes late summer 97 is when the right path actually first started so i definitely I guess you would say I did the fanzine first, and then I started the label, and then the, the booking. But you know, we'll talk about the fanzine a little bit, I guess. Uh, you know, because that 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 I've I've meant I've referenced fanzines on here a few times, obviously on the hex episode, and you know, I think Scott Vogel and I talked about them a little bit too. But you know, I think that's kind of one of the things, you know, in hardcore that was always kind of it didn't get quite as much love as as I would have liked was was the fanzines. Like people definitely respected them, but I don't think there was quite as big of a culture there as, as could have been you know i loved them but i was sort of um i mean you know me i'm a design guy you know i went to art school I, i'm an art teacher so for me i loved having something visual in my hand same kind of way with a layout you know you open up the layout and you know I, I did a lot of layouts for your bands as well but i like having something in my hand that i can read i like looking at the ads and seeing how the layout was done so for me that was something i really connected to and I know it still exists, and there's quite a few zines that are around, and I wish I was still connected to that, but I'm I'm really not as much. Um, is there anything else you wanted to cover that that you wanted to 
say with Ray Path at all? Not really, except for the fact that it was it was definitely cool interviewing all those bands back then and kind of getting to know them. And obviously, in my opinion, that was pretty similar to what's going on with podcasts now, especially like with this kind of podcast where, you know, each each episode's kind of uh, featuring somebody. Um, but but the only the other thing that I will say about the fanzine, well, well, obviously I think it was kind of like an unsung thing where not a lot of people gave it the shine that it should have gotten but the other the other thing too was that doing a fanzine like what i did or like what hex did it could be dated pretty quickly because like obviously there'd be a couple cool interviews in there but like i'd be i'd be reviewing records shows fanzines so now when you when you're depending on somebody to do a layout for that too you're you're adding a few extra weeks plus the printing time you know what i mean so even if you get it done right away that's already eight weeks after you had basically you know, written all that stuff. So, so and, right. and, and, and the band could be broken up. Yeah. Who knows? And the terms that we're in now, uh, you know, it'd be, it'd be fun to do a fanzine again, but it would have to be like a once a year type thing or something just for like fun. You know, like you wouldn't, the way I, the way I wanted to do one, it wouldn't, I feel like with the internet and with podcasts and stuff, it'd be hard to, to do with something like that. You know? Now this next question, I, I'm not sure where it fits into the timeline because I moved back to Rochester from Buffalo and, 2000 2001 that's sort of when we got to know each other and we were actually roommates for a while people didn't know that um you've said this quote on the podcast many times i could say probably eight or nine times i've heard you say the same sentence and now you're gonna get into it because you've said i've been in some horrible bands but i'm not gonna get into that right now let's get into that now <laughs> tell me about it every time you say we're uh, not gonna get into that well let's get into that well it's funny because you had uh quote unquote surprises for me that you and I were going over before the interview where you were playing music, uh, which we'll get into in a little bit, obviously. But um Do you have a surprise? I should have pulled it up and I probably again I don't know this technology, so I'm sure there'd be a way for me to play it over here and people could hear it. But um if you can find it while I'm while I'm talking about it on your end and, and pipe it in, in a second, that's cool. But there's so I was in three bands uh well I guess technically four. I don't know. Ben and I I'm not gonna go into at length crazily about them because Ben and I talked about them in the last episode, but I will, you know, talk about each one a little bit. Um, so Bob Barker and the Womanizers was obviously the first one. Um, and that band started, uh, we, we, we first started practicing in the fall of 1995. Uh, and that was like a week after I had broken my arm crowd surfing at an Alaska concert, which I, uh, got into for free because I called the nerve when the band was in the studio. And I was like, you know, can I get a, free ticket and they were they were all annoyed they were trying to hang up on me and the girl who sang for the band justine she was sitting right there and she was like oh i think we can put one more person on the list tonight you know and i wasn't so i wasn't even gonna go to the concert until like you know a half hour before i left my house and uh long story short i crowd surfed and broke my arm that night so that ended my basketball career um so so the, the following week i'm in a cast and we're, we're practicing for bob barker and, and it's you know uh, we had all, well, I don't even think everybody in the band, well, most people in the band were into punk, actually. The drummer wasn't really into it, but the other three of us were into punk rock. Uh, ben, obviously, who I interviewed the last episode, and, you know, a good friend of ours uh, at the time, somebody I, I'm still in touch with, uh, Josh Yonkin. Uh, the three of us uh, played, and then and then Brian Murray played drums. Um, so I don't know, really know what kind of sound we were going for, to be honest. I guess we were going for, like, a punk rock, hardcore thing. Um, but as I mentioned in the episode with Ben, I don't know, really know if, if Ben didn't know how to play what you would call, like, uh, I want to say bar or power chords, like the two the two chords that you mainly use yeah. in hardcore. Um, yeah. he, he didn't really play those. So he played, like, 
just like your your six string like E G. Right. Like the full chords we're using all six strings, right? Yeah. So he would just yeah. play those like really fast, and it would sound the really easy, easy chords. Yeah, it would sound really weird though for like a hardcore punk band, you know what I mean? And then I'm just like screaming pretty terribly. I will say that in the episode with Kevin Wilcox, he mentioned that because there is a recording of Bob Barker that did exist. We played a club called New York Nights on Christmas night, 1996, with like Lethargy, uh, Shop Class Squares. I can't remember what other bands, but a bunch of bands. It was like a Christmas night. It was a really cool show. And I got like a, I used to always record audio of like shows and like soundboard shit. I had a lot of pre-YouTube, you know, it was a cool thing to have. It would be like live recordings. So I recorded our set from that night and we ended up turning it into like a demo. Um, and I, I put some of those songs on like tape comps too, which, which goes back to the label. Like before I, well, I guess we haven't talked about the label yet, but when we, when we get into that, um, so I had these tape comps, and Kevin Wilcox ended up getting a copy, or he had a copy of it that I didn't realize he still had. So long story short, there are Bob Barker recordings out there. If anybody's really curious, I'm sure we could probably uh, find a way to digitize some of that stuff too. Um, but anyway, we could do a full episode on that. That would be funny. But yeah, so the, I guess the the short of it, the short version of it is, uh, Ben and I realized, you know, we we only probably played like maybe ten to twelve shows. Uh, we we started. We started. We played our first official show March of '96, and our last official show of March of '97. So it was basically a year of playing shows around town. There wasn't any other bands that, like now. It's more common to have people that are, at the time we were probably 15. You know that there there wasn't that back then. You didn't see a band full of like 15 year old kids. Like we went. We ended up playing the Bug Jar one night. Um, the Thunder Gods, which is another band Rob Florida was in. They, they were playing there that night, and it must have been a band they were supposed to play with. Didn't didn't get on the bill or something but they called me like late they were like you know can you guys get down here and play and like we're like legit uh 15 at the time you know and the bug jar is 21 and over this is before the bug jar did any all ages shows or any 18 and over shows it was 21 and over so we all showed up and we had to have the x's on our hands and you know and i went to school the next day telling everybody how we played a bar the night before you know and they all thought it was cool but no, the band was pretty terrible. I, again, I don't really know what I'd compare it to. Towards the end, we thought we were getting better, but I was never really that good of a singer, so that definitely didn't help matters. But Ben was getting more into like, like fast hardcore. I guess what you would call like power violence, grindcore. So he wanted to do more like that kind of stuff, which leads into our next band, which is two bands, which is basically the same band, uh, the Scabortions, and Running Through the Blood which Ben had played guitar in Bob Barker, and then he switched over to bass for these two bands. My friend Colin, who you probably met once or twice when you and I were roommates. Uh, yeah, I feel like I know that. Yeah, I, I grew up with him, and, and we've been like like pretty much pretty good friends ever since. Uh, he played guitar in that band, and then this dude, Mike Blake, played drums. But then the, la- the latter version of that band, uh, Pete Kniff from Break of Dawn and, and Head On and a bunch of other bands, he played guitar for Running Through the Blood, and then uh, Crook... Uh, who had played drums in Makeshift and uh, what was the other band? He, his own hero. He's he's played he played in some bands like late '90s around Rochester. You, you'd probably know him too. He's a really good uh, artist. Uh, so, anyways, those two bands were were similar, but not the exact same band because um, we had different members. But it was basically like a, a, a really fast hardcore with mosh parts. Like um, I was doing like the low vocals. The thing about this stuff was there was a ton of samples, uh, blast beats. Uh, I tried to do like the low vocals. Ben would sing on a little bit too. Uh, we also do a cover of uh, the Cars, just what I needed. If you ever hear us do that version of it, you will never be able to hear the you know original again and think of 
anything else because we really destroyed that song. These dudes just didn't really know how to play instruments that well. So my buddy Colin, he was more like a surf rock, like hippie type dude, and he couldn't really palm mute on the guitar. And once I learned about like the open E, like chugga chugga stuff, I was like, yo, if this dude can't do that, like we gotta find somebody else to play guitar, you know? So Pete kind of stepped in and played. We didn't we didn't really unfortunately that 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 was when the band was finally I feel like this band running through the blood that we did at the end there. We probably could have done pretty well, especially if we'd have come around a couple years later, because we were doing like this kind of stuff's definitely been more popular now too. Um, it was like again like a really fast hardcore, but with like mosh parts. And anybody who's from here knows that Pete Kniff, you know, is a pretty decent guitar player. I mean, again, he played in uh, Break of Dawn, Head On, Barely Breathing, you know, some other bands. I'm pretty sure. Um, so he had he had written some pretty good parts, and then we had kept a couple of the old songs. Uh, and, and again, Crook, who has not probably played any bands recently, but back then, you know, he played drums in a lot of hardcore bands, and then later on he ended up playing in more of, like, all sorts of just, like, different kinds of music. Uh, he's a really good drummer, so I feel like if we would have kept doing that band for, like, a year or two, it, it uh, it could have, we could have, you know, done a couple seven inches or whatever, and, you know, I've always kind of, you know, wanted to sing for a band, but that was probably the closest that it ever really came, um, and I think everybody's schedule is just, you know, even though we were young, I think some people in the band just weren't really that committed to doing it, you know? I think, too, um, part of it, and I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, too, is you just got so busy because you were working and you were doing so much other things with booking shows and uh, contacting people and then the labels. So <clears throat> as an outsider, it seemed to me, especially you being my roommate and seeing you every single day, it seemed like you were so focused on that that, it's not that you didn't want to be in a band or you didn't want to push that anymore. I feel like you were doing so much and you were juggling so many things that you just couldn't shoehorn that in of all the stuff that you were doing. You were just going a thousand miles an hour. So um, I'd like to get into this next, and that is um, the label, which I just found something really interesting uh, when I when I looked up your, your scaborsions here. Um, I looked it up and it says here on this tape that that is Blatherskite Records. Well, so I don't know if that counts as an official release. So I think I have a list of your releases and I don't see that as your first release. So let's back it up a little bit. Again, all these names uh, for all these different things that I did were like not really inside jokes, but just like stupid things that I thought were cool ideas. Like Blatherskite was like a DuckTales reference. DuckTales, right. That's yeah. Used to say. Yeah. So originally it was actually Blatherskite Noise, um, which that was more what I was kind of referencing before with the Bob Barker thing was uh, I was doing a lot of tapes. So what we would do is, uh, and this is a lot of this had to do with like Book Your Own Fucking Life, which was like a maximum rock and roll based publication that would come out every year where they were just, you could, anybody could submit like a listing for free. And it was like you, you, you'd submit like your band, your label you know, whatever, and I would just contact people from there and, and start, you know, shooting the shit and, and then eventually just doing, like, tape comps and stuff. So that was... I want to... I don't have any of these tapes anymore either, but I want to say I, I used the name Blatherskite Noise for all those, too, which would have been... There was definitely a tape comp called uh, Come Tap Dance With Me, uh, which had at least 20 or 30, you know, songs. The Dents were probably on most of those comps. Um, but aside from that, I really couldn't tell you 
you know, the music was more, again, like grindcore, like tape comp, you know, lo-fi. So there was at least, I know I did Come Tap Dance With Me. I did a, a tape comp called A Tradition of Lies. I guess we, we, we won't go too far into this, but we'll, uh, backing up to my musical projects, I also was in a couple harsh noise projects called uh, Gastrointestinal Atrocity. And, uh, I know that name, maybe just from your interviews, but I don't think I was around then, was I? Yeah, well, we played with uh, Orchid. I don't know if you ever at that show or not, but... Um, I would have remembered. Yeah, so I was in Gastrointestinal Atrocity, and I had a solo project called J-Dog, which were both like just harsh noise, but not like probably unlistenable. I don't think I'd want to listen to it now, put it that way. But those, we did releases with those uh, things, which those were also, like if you were to Google like some of those, if you were to Google gastrointestinal atrocity, I'm pretty sure stuff comes up still. And so some of that stuff came out. So that, so, so initially it was like a tape label. And then, so that's probably going from like 96 to like early 99. And right. I, I have down 99 as your first release and it's a split, which I find interesting because that's kind of the same way that Hex started because Hex did his split with uh, Herman DeKalb and Every Time I Die and your first, if I have every my my uh, research correct, is 1999, and that's Kung Fu Rick and Bad Acid Trip Split. Is that correct? Yeah, and that actually kind of bridges the gap between what I was talking about with all the weird tape comps and lo-fi recordings, because there was a dude named Ryan Durkin, who, uh, if anybody's familiar with the band He Who Corrupts, um, that's 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 him. He was like the singer of that band. But backing up before that, he had sang for a band called Kung Fu Rick. And he was one of the people that when you would like release these tape comps, you would trade them with people and you would also get like literally like 10 or 20 like little like like printed ads. Like I don't even know how to describe them, but but we would just like I would have like a, a shoebox full of those things that I would just send to people in the mail of, of like random ones that I would trade. And so I met him that way somehow and him and I would just like 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 write letters, trade tapes and stuff. And Kung Fu Rick was definitely on a couple of those tape comps come to think of it. I, I had always been like, if I put out a 7-inch, I would love to have those guys on because I'm already friends with the singer and they seem like, you know, pretty cool dudes and I like their band. So then me and Ben were, you know, we, we grew up like as best friends or whatever and, and we both wanted to kind of start doing a record label at the same time, which granted I had already kind of technically released tapes, you know, I can't really, I don't know if you'd really call that a label, I guess, you know, it's it's out there. But anyways, him and I wanted to do the label together, so we decided to do that split 7-inch, um... And as he mentioned on the last episode, if, you know, Bad Acid Trip probably wouldn't have been the first band he picked. And for me, for people that know me, I would probably pick more of like a New York hardcore sounding band if I could do it over again now. But at the time, you know, I was I was pretty good friends with those guys, Kung Fu Rick, so it made sense to do it. So it was pretty easy. I feel like when you're doing your first release to do it like that, where you, you, you work with somebody else and you, you, you kind of split the cost. It made it a lot easier. So him and I, you know, each paid. We didn't pay for the recording or anything. The bands did that themselves. So I think I think Ben probably got a hold of Badass Trip and had them. You know, he took care of all their shit, and then Kung Fu Rick, I took care of theirs. I'm guessing we had uh, what do they ever call those? Like DAT DAT tapes or whatever, and we yeah. sent those into. I want to say we would have gone through United Record Pressing for the first one. So yeah, his label. I don't even know if he mentioned on the episode where him and I talked, but his 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 label is called War on Wankers Records, and I think I was I st- I was still going by Blatherskite Noise for at least a couple releases. I don't think I switched to Blatherskite Records and then eventually Enterprise Records. And I guess you you probably know because you have some releases pulled up, but I I think it was a while. Yeah. 
Um, well, when I looked it up and I went on to Discogs, I'm getting both. I mean, actually, all three would come up. But, I mean, it's I look at that as kind of your evolution and how things sort of changed with, with you and what you were into and uh, how things were progressing. So it makes sense that, that that's kind of what happened. And then um, I'm... I looked it up and it looks like uh, Stand Fast is next. And if people haven't listened, there's a whole episode um, with two of the guys from Stand Fast, which is a, a great episode. If people listening have never heard of that band, uh, they were kind of a, a big deal locally. It was sort of this joke we would always say if uh, if you think of Rochester, you pretty much only think of Stand Fast. That was kind of our thing we would say all the time. And they were a big deal and they were great. I mean, they, you know, they weren't the greatest musicians and to be fair neither were the bands we were all in but like they just hit a chord in rochester and uh, you know figuratively they did and and people were just so drawn to them and and rory the singer was uh, just a great front man and um i guess i'm curious how that marriage began and how you decided to do that record and i know there's a whole podcast on it so you don't have to spend a ton of time on that well that that was definitely all all Rory and I and, and 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 the funny inside thing that I mentioned in the Rory episode the episode with Rory and Van Etten is that I had actually and again this goes back to you know splits and and doing different releases I had wanted to when that band Curl Up and Die was first coming around uh, I think they're from Las Vegas I, I was really into that band when they first came out and I wanted to try to do something with them I didn't even know those dudes but I just like wrote them a letter or sent them an email or something I was like yo we should do a split with this band from my hometown called Stanfast, and it would be cool. And I told Rory about it, and he thought it was a cool idea. But then I never heard back from those dudes. I waited, like, a, probably two weeks, however long you waited back then, you know. And then I, I sent Rory whatever the thing was back then, email, instant message, whatever. Because this is probably, I'm guessing, late 99. Because um, him and I have been friends for a few years already, you know. But I was like, that band doesn't want to do it, so let's just do a... Uh, a full length, you know, and I remember him being stoked about that idea. So, so the full length came out in 2000, yes. uh, September of 2000. So I'm guessing him and I would have been talking about it in the fall of 99, which sounds about right, actually, because him and I and a bunch of other people went to see uh, Ten Yard Fight's last show around that time, and I feel like that was around the same time that we first started talking about this. But yeah, no, Stanfest was a band that I really liked, obviously. You know, I booked them a lot back then. Um, I was at a lot of their shows. As, as you know, we don't need to go too far into the weeds on this again but we as we've talked about i booked that uh failed tour with hex so yeah that that was a band that was very important to me at the time and it was cool to do that that cd and that definitely obviously the split seven inch that ben and i did is what started the label but like the Stanfest cd is what really started the label yeah, you know what really i mean well it was a good record too yeah well the other funny thing is aside from the last couple things which we'll get into if we talk about all the releases all my early stuff all like like i sold all of it i mean i only pressed a thousand which to me is crazy because now i hear bands pressing like crazy like 200 500 you know what i mean like small pressings and i'm like dude like i was pressing a thousand back then like i thought vinyl was cool now you know what i mean like it's just crazy to think of like you know smaller pressings like that you know sticking in that order um one yeah two, so our boy Sally edge yeah so what would happen at that point and this is before you and i lived together again if we're talking you know all all three of them between the right path enterprise hardcore well enterprise booking enterprise hardcore again we'll, we'll talk about how all those names you know combined in a little bit but um 
between the right path, enterprise hardcore, and, to, and the label to a certain extent, I, w- I was starting to get a lot more mail and a lot more people like fielding to me about having their band either play here or have me review their, their record or whatever. When I lived at my first apartment on Meg Street, uh, 830 Crew, shout out to Petey, shout out to Dustin, I remember getting a, a CD demo uh, by a band called Miles Between Us. And it wasn't like, you know, the the, the most amazing re- release I had heard. But again, going back to that Bridge Nine sound, it definitely had that sound. And I could tell that their singer, Matt, especially the way he wrote his lyrics, was definitely not like cookie cutter. Um, but his vocals weren't, weren't, weren't either. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, you know, when you play like a youth crew straight edge sound, you're not going to really open up too many doors. But... I could tell there was something different about them. So they 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 initially were actually he was sending me the demo. I think he had probably talked to Count Me Out or Strike Anywhere, one of the bands that I booked, about playing here at some point. You know, because we, we you know as we'll get into a book and show, you build a good reputation and, and you know bands wanna wanna come here. So they were from Ottawa, and and at that point I was like you know I'd already put out the Stand Fast CD and I I wanted to start branching out more and I was like man that'd be cool to put out a record for those guys. So I think I might have even told them straight up right away. I was like, yo, I could definitely do a show for you guys, but it'd be cool maybe to do a seven inch too, you know, which looking back on it, if I were to start a label now, I probably wouldn't tell a band without ever seeing them and without ever meeting the person that it'd be cool, you know, um, and that just seems, and that, but that also kind of shows you like the good faith of hardcore, you know what I mean? Because think about that. Like if you were in like, uh, Dead to the World or whatever band in like 99, 2000 and you had like sent a package to like Jeff Blake in Phoenix, Arizona whatever, you know what I mean? Like, And all of a sudden he's like, oh, let's do a 7-inch. You wouldn't have thought twice about it either, you know what I mean? Like, That's just how it was with, with Hardcore. Once somebody offered to do something back then, it was like alright, cool, they're interested in working with our band, you know? So anyway, so Miles Between Us b- before all the, the stuff happened with the 7-inch I ended up booking what has since become a pretty noteworthy show in Rochester. So they played here on my birthday of 2001 with uh, Stand Fast, Count Me Out, Strike Anywhere, and uh, Wrong the Oppressor, um, which is funny because I almost did a record for Wrong the Oppressor. I did a record for Miles Between Us, and obviously I did a CD for Stand Fast. So like on my birthday, it was kind of supposed to be like a little showcase, you know, and, and obviously I loved Count Me Out, so I, I definitely wanted to have them play. Miles Between Us... That was so that show was March of 2001. We had already agreed to do the seven inch, and then it's also I can't remember with Stanfest if I did this or not, but I definitely paid for the recording for the Miles Between Us seven inch, and that was when I around that time I know, and I'm I'm not actually wasn't going into I'm not sure if I paid for your guys' recording. So I'm gonna think about because I think you guys recorded somewhere else. But anytime from that point on, if a band went to Watchmen, I paid for it. Um, that one we did in Syracuse yeah we'll get to that in a second so but that was another thing about doing the, the DIY record label too you would have like arrangements like either you're going to pay for the recording or you're going to give a extra, couple extra records if you're not paying for the recording you know so anyways in, in, in the first week I want to say of August of 2001 again Miles Between Us is from Ottawa so they drove I don't know if they I think they drove here and stayed at my apartment on Monroe Ave and then Spindle, who I definitely should get on an episode at some point, a really cool punk rock dude who's actually from Jersey but lived here for a couple of years. Him, John25, and I drove to, to Buffalo 
and they drove in their van, and we uh, went there for the whole day, and they recorded the seven inch. It took them one day to record that seven inch. Um, I ha- I still have a few copies of that. I mean, I have a copy of everything that I released. Um, shout out to Solly, Matt Ford too. For anybody listening, if you collect vinyl, if you don't already follow Matt Ford on Instagram, I'm pretty sure it's like Variant. But yeah, so then I his 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 Instagram's called Variant Coverage Blog. And he posts just, like, different, like, colored vinyl and just, like, cool stuff for people to collect records. Um, but, yeah, I ended up staying friends with those guys. I was supposed to do a full length with them, but it ended up... I got in over my head, which we'll get into in a second with your guys' uh, CD, because that was around the same time. I, I made commitments to a lot of bands at the same time, and I wasn't... I didn't have a, too much of a steady flow of income coming in at the time, because I was kind of more just booking shows and, and doing the label and working part-time, if anything. Um, so that, yeah, we did the seven inch, but like I said, with most of my early stuff, everything, I, I didn't end up with any extra copies, a thousand copies pressed, you know, those guys did some cool shows too. They definitely did some touring with strike anywhere. Uh, they did some shows with no warning Bane. They, I'm pretty sure miles between us tour with a disaster too. come to think of it. Um, cause that was a thing once, yeah. one, like pretty much all the bands on my label, you know, which it wasn't a lot of bands, obviously, as we'll get to, but, like, that, it was a friendship thing, you know, like, you guys became friends with Saving Throw, you know what I mean, like, so, it was cool to kind of have, like, networking thing where, you know, Miles Between Us played here a few times, and then they became friends with, like, John 25 and, and Pieces and all those guys, you know, so that that was definitely a good experience, and, you know, uh, I forget the name of the band that Matt LaForge has played in. Matt LaForge and Solly, and, and Matt Ford, too, for that matter. Most of those dudes in that band have all ended up playing in bands as, they, as they've as they gone on, uh, and, they, and they've gotten older, so they definitely have kept playing music, so that's cool. So shout out to those guys. What do we got and next? I have, next I have Saving Throw, but I have Miles Between Us 2001, and then Building on Fire, which is after, is 2002, so where did Saving Throw fit in? Because they were in between, right? Yeah, I think the thing that happened was... I think, like, probably the first day you and I were roommates, we already decided we were going to do a Building on Fire CD on the label. I don't know if you already had the record out on Hex, but either way, you guys, it took a while to record yours for some reason. So I think it ended up being a thing where I had planned on doing yours before Saving Throw, but then they ended up, you know what I mean, they just recorded, or they already had the tracks recorded, so we released that first. Um, I think we had to wait to get in, because we recorded it with Jocko in Syracuse, yeah. and I think we... I think it, he was backed up, and that's why that ended up happening that way. That's probably but, what. Am I right? Saving throw was between. Yeah. Them, right. What, what did they sound like? I mean, I know. But yeah. To me, the the easiest way to describe them would be like, uh, like shy halud. You know what I mean? But like a little bit more emotional, or just you know, with the vocals. Syracuse. Definitely a, a band that I don't I don't think got the credit that they deserve. I think they came out a couple years too soon. If they would have come out a little bit later, there were some bands on Trustkill I feel like that did a similar sound that got pretty big. The the thing with Saving Throw, it was similar to Miles Between Us, where I think Jeff just kind of sent me either a demo or an email and was like, "Yo, we should we would definitely like to play Rochester sometime." And then I think I waited till I met them this time, and, and it was like at at the show I was like, "Oh, you know, we should do." a CD, you know, and they were obviously cool with it. So that's a band that I always tried to push hard. And, you know, I got, I got them on a, like a hate breed show in Erie, you know, I, I definitely got them some good shows, but for whatever reason, it just never really clicked. Saving Throw is one of those bands that they had really good music, really good lyrics. 
and for some reason it just never really popped off the way that I feel like it should have, you know? Building on Fire did a little bit of touring with them. We did something, I don't know if you consider it Midwest, but I think we went down to Kentucky and Tennessee. We played that area with them, and that was a lot of fun. Yeah, Shy Hulu's a great comparison. Not yeah. like a copycat, but definitely in that same vein. That's a that's a really good way to describe it. I think some people... Uh, I don't know if it's been a few long on these, but uh, we talked about Building on Fire 1. There's a whole... You know, I'd, I'd like to do a Building on Fire episode with you at some point, too, and we can really get into kind of how this album was done because the other guys probably have a better memory than I do about this time. I'm kind of getting to the point where, like, I've done so many bands that, like, it's all kind of bleeding together a little bit. So when I talk to other people in the bands, it helps jog my memory. But So there was a while before this one came out for a couple reasons, which you can talk about a little bit, but I don't think we need to dwell too much on it. You want to talk about that a little bit? with the Building on Fire record. I referenced it in the Jeffers episode too, just getting a little in over my head where I made too many commitments. And I think I ended up having to work two jobs for a little while even to get some money together to put these albums out. And then again, Miles Between Us ended up going with uh, Think Fast Records instead, which that ended up being a good thing for them because that label ended up being you know pretty successful uh, down the road. But anyways, back to you guys. Um, I think it's, it's definitely some of your guys' So obviously, the full length on Hex is, is classic for you guys, but I definitely think the stuff that I did for you guys is, is some of your better stuff, too. Uh, I can't remember if I told this story or not on your episode about when I spoke to that college. You remember? Did I ever tell that story? Maybe I told it when we did that Instagram Live. Um, I'll tell a brief version of it here. Um, so, in like 2002 or 2003, uh, a college professor had asked me to come speak at U of R about all the stuff that we're talking about right now, like the, all the random like DIY stuff that I did. And I don't know if she like was able to connect the fact that I was not a high school graduate and I was, and I was doing all this stuff too. Like I, I forget what the class was, that she, what I was speaking to, but anyways, I, she wanted me, she, cause I was doing, you know, it was cool to them. I was doing like all this DIY stuff. So I brought like all like the fanzine and I brought some CDs and, uh, at one point she was like, Oh, can you, uh, can we, can we play one of the CDs? And so one of the one one of the one of the bands we're going to get to in a minute. I was like, well, in my head, I was like, well, this is going to be the most tolerable stuff. Yeah. Granted, she already had heard me talk, right, like throwing the word hardcore around the whole time, so she kind of knew what kind of what stuff we were going to be talking about. Um, so I put on uh, the Nobody Cares or Rose of Red CD, and after the song plays, she looks at me and she's like, I I I I just. I have to admit, I feel like the stuff, the, some of the other stuff you're you're not playing for us is probably more, you know, suitable to the the, the, the descriptions you've given us. So, the next CD I give her was the the Building on Fire One Plus One Equals Blue, and I forget the lyrics, but like like it was like fuck this and yeah. like it might even is there a song called Say Hello to Fuck You on there? Yes. I think that might track. be the song that she played. Yeah. So you know. <laughs> Nobody was offended by it, but, you know, granted, I'm just trying to, you know, so it was just funny, but, uh, um, and, you know, not to pat myself on the back, but that, just, just tying in everything I'm just talking about with, the, with and, and this is kind of getting off topic, but the whole U of R thing, it just goes to show, like, not just what I was able to accomplish, because, yeah, I was the one doing all these different things, but, like, we all kind of accomplished that, like, that it was cool that there was a big thing going on here with, like, DIY Hardcore to the point where, like, this girl yeah. wanted me to come and talk to her class about it, you know? So I, I thought that was pretty cool. Well, and they did that whole article in the in the DNC about you too, which was the, the lion's share article. I remember reading that, and 
I think we had it on the wall for a while in the apartment, and that was, that was a good article. Yeah, our old buddy Jeff Spivak. Well, we'll get more into that, I feel like, when we talk about the booking aspect, because that was mainly yeah, yeah. with the booking. So, um, all right, so we did the Billy on Fire. Yeah, I, I, I think you and I have talked about having, you know, we'll let the cat out of the bag a little bit here. I think we've talked about doing uh, whether a full or a quasi- uh, uh, Boff reunion, Boff union, whatever the, the word you want to use for that is, but getting some of you yeah. guys together for an episode. Yeah, so, that'd be great. so we'll do that at some point. We'll talk more about this album then, definitely. So next, so people listening can't see this. Oh, I forgot <laughs> about that. Yeah, they right are now. different. Two records that are the same record, but one of them on the front says nobody cares, and the other one says roses are red. Yeah. Explain this band. Well, is the same band or different? Band? I know the answer, but well, ahead. it's kind of the same and kind of different at the same time. And actually, right. what's interesting, and I doubt he'll remember this, but Rory kind of ties into all this. So, really? so before I tell that though, nobody cares. Was this like, you know, not very good like punk band in the beginning? Like they're all good dudes. I always got along really good with 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 Carl and and Matt, and, and uh, uh, Brian, Gus there. I was always friends with those guys, but, you know, it just wasn't, the, in the beginning, the music just wasn't really for me. But then, like, within, right. a, within like, probably, I'd say about a year and a half, they kind of started to to get their, to, to catch their stride, and they, they were playing more of, like, a hardcore punk thing, and they even did, like, some minor threat covers. This would probably be more, like, 99, 2000. Like, you gotta, you gotta realize, nobody cares they started in like nine. I don't even know. You have to. Well, we'll ask Matt Gordon when I get on, on the podcast. But I think they would have started in like '97 or '98. I, I don't know exactly, but they definitely were around for a while. Um, and I and I started to enjoy them more around like '99 when they started to get more like hardcore punk, and they were they were still kind of pop punk, but it, they definitely had more of like a hardcore punk, like just fast, like snotty. So they played a lot of shows. Spindle and I would book them a lot, and and Matt was just this really energetic good dude that I always got along with really well. Probably a year or so later, they, they started to take their sound even more seriously, and that's when they wrote, like, the song called Honey Oi, which Gus yeah. would sing at the end of their set, and it was, it was, that's when you were like, this band has some potential. I, I think I even remember telling Matt that, and that's when me and Matt become, started becoming really good friends. So then, I, so then this is where Rory ties in, like, that was around 2000, but then I'd say, like, about two years later, Vinny... Minervino, or I guess now Vincent Minervino, uh, he goes more and more professionally, but um, he had been in a bunch of local bands like Arm's Length and The Exam, uh, oh. Shoe Pillow, but but no, um, so he'd been in a bunch of bands, and then I think he always just kind of wanted to be like a successful musician, like singer type dude or whatever, and I think they knew that, and they and they knew he was a good musician, so they asked they asked him to play drums. That's right. He was a drummer first. And Rory, Rory booked the first show with him on drums at Java's one summer. And that's when I saw that lineup and I was like, yo, these guys, now they got like, this is the band now, you know, unfortunately it didn't work out with Carl. They, you know, they parted ways there and it ended up being, you know, Vinny. So it was Vinny on drums at that point, Gus on bass, Matt on guitar. And I think Matt and Gus would switch off on vocals or whatever. Yeah. So then, at that point, Matt was like, you know, you should do a full length for us. And this is around the time with you guys and the miles between us. And I was like, dude, I can't, I don't have any more money. I can't fucking do this. You know what I mean? 
and he was like the way the way he described it to me, it was like that dude could have been like a fucking like the most successful telemarketer you would ever possibly meet because he like he was like dude it's gonna be a, a, sh- a shoe in you're gonna make money this is gonna be this that we're gonna get signed immediately afterwards and i was like i've never been hustled before but i felt like i was being hustled you know but i was like all right i'll do it you know so we do the full length another another side point is that he, pat stefano they asked to do the to do the first uh, version of that with me so him and i it's a uh, enterprise slash kickbright i think would be the first uh one yep yeah so, so for looking at the layout right now which which i did for them yeah the front it says uh nobody cares and there's like um kind of a model with lights on uh it handshakes and heartbreaks that's not a model though that, that's something i was going to get into in a second too so <laughs> um so right. so they asked so they asked stefano and i to do the the cd together i don't know exactly why stefano wasn't always involved with the second pressing i think it might have been because i had exclusive distribution with lumberjack by then which we'll get to in a second yeah and the second one is just you yeah it's just me because again i think i had my exclu- exclusive with lumberjack and i pretty much just pressed all those CDs and, and shit most of them there. But but before before we... And again, all this will probably... When I interview Matt Gordon, he'll probably dive more in, deeply into this. But when they went to record the full length, it was going to be Brian singing most of the parts. And they recorded that album with Doug White. And I don't know if Doug said it nicely to him or if he was just blunt about it. I, I'm not a musician, so I've never really recorded with Doug. I've only been there like you know a couple times with him. But he eventually told Brian, he was like, you, this isn't going to work with you on vocals. Like, this recording's just not going to, it's not going to work. And, and, and they didn't, this is like, we had cell, we might have had cell phones, I don't know, but it was like pretty early cell phone. It's like 2002, 2003. And Matt told me about all this afterwards. Like, he didn't even tell me, like, while this was happening. So they decided pretty much on the spot that Vinny was going to sing those songs instead. And then they would get another drummer and Vinny would sing live. And they didn't, and again, we're doing this CD on my label, basically, like Stefano and I are doing it together, but like, you know, I'm investing money in this, and I don't even hear what the fuck, I, it's just like they made this decision, you know what I mean? I'm like, what the fuck's gonna happen here, you know? And, uh, but it worked out, you know, that, that CD is great. If you think, if you compare, well, first of all, none of the bands on my label sound the same at all, but that is the one that definitely stands out where you would not expect me to put out. Because by then they're playing more like what would have been considered like drive-through records. Yeah, um, not pop punk, but yeah, I don't know. Definitely like not stuff that I would have been putting out. But again, though, I like that album. It's a really catchy album. Uh, I've always liked Matt's voice. Vinny's a really good singer. But that CD was definitely successful. And as I referenced before, I ended up getting... Hex and I talked about this on our interview too, but I ended up getting exclusive distribution through Lumberjack Distribution based off of that CD, which I guess Lumberjack ended up, I don't know, something happened down the road where they, they fucked some people over, but I, I definitely never got fucked over. I, I was, you know, I, I that CD was successful and we pressed that thing a few times. And after that, uh, Rose the Red actually signed to uh, Truskill. And I remember when Matt was telling me that they were talking to both Truskill and... Uh, victory and i i didn't believe that that they were talking to both those labels i was like dude there's no way that 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 Truskill and victory want to sign your band you know but it was true you know but apparently they turned down victory to go with Truskill, which if you think about that it's pretty crazy to think about a how big Truskill was at one point where a band would want to sign with them instead of victory yeah. you know but i i think they made the right decision honestly like i i think i even told them at the time like i would 
I would go with Kreskel over Victory too. Like obviously I'm not in a position to make that decision, you know, but it, it made sense to me for them to do that. So you have one last release, is that right? You did one more after the yeah. uh, Nobody Cares Roses Are Red? Yeah, so again, Saving Throw was a band that I really had high aspirations for and you you I think you have the C D in front of you. I don't I don't I don't it's in my basement, I'm pretty sure, if you have the full length. I don't I think let me grab it. I have it over here. I don't okay. think I don't think they recorded that at Watchmen though. I think they might have recorded that somewhere else, but they took they took their time with that. Uh, again, I'm not going to dive too far into that because I already referenced Saving Throw with the EP. But first of all, what's crazy about that release coupled with the Roses Are Red release around that time is I actually bought an ad in uh, Alternative Press magazine. Uh, and I think you guys were in that ad too. Yeah, so that's the full length. Yep, Saving Throw, uh, Never Race With Time. I can't remember if they... I don't think they recorded at Watchmen. I don't even know if it says it in there. But... Um, so that was the last release. I had a couple other bands that I talked to about doing stuff with. Pre-Sirens and Sailors, uh, Renoff was a band that I was going to work with. And then I think there might have been one other band, but I can't remember off the top of my head. But yeah, that was pretty much the end of it. This was 2003 and recorded at Max Tracks. And I'm trying to remember Oh, that. that's in New Jersey, I'm pretty sure. I think that was a bigger yeah. studio. Yeah, I think we spent some money on that. Damn, I don't even know how I would have afforded that, dude. Like, that's crazy to think about, because maybe they paid for it and you just. I don't think. I don't think so though, because I'm pretty sure I paid. Because I because I really wanted that band to like, you know what I mean? I, I thought that band was really gonna blow up at some point, and they, and so I tried to pay for everything. I, I never made like merchandise or bought like a a van for them or anything, you know what I mean? But I tried to really do well by them, and I definitely. That's the only band that I lost money on. I don't, I don't regret that because, you know what I mean, it was a band that I thought was going to take off and it just, for some reason, it never did. Let's transition that into, into you booking shows, and here's why. Some of your shows were really great, and you, but I know that you booked some that ended up kind of being a struggle, so not that booking shows is really a, a way to make money to, to fund these releases, but um, you want to talk about booking shows a little bit, and then I have a follow-up question after that about booking shows in the future. Yeah, you know, it's funny you would say that not that booking shows is a way to make money to fund these releases because I think a lot of people had the image that I was making money and and I'm not going to lie and say that I never made money because obviously, like, there's a few shows that I can think of off the top of my head where I did, but there's plenty where I can think of where I lost, like, a couple times, like 800, 500, 300. But then I was thinking, I was talking to Ben, who was on the last episode a while back, and I was like, yeah, I don't know why people would have this stupid image that I was trying to make money. And he was like, well, dude, you called it Enterprise Hardcore. And I was like, I was like, damn, dude, I was like, I never thought about that. But that's what I've been trying to say this whole time. And it's not like they're all, none of those dudes are going to listen to this interview. So I don't even know why I'm going to bother explaining this, but I'm going to anyways, real quick. So originally I did the Right Path fanzine. At the time, I was a big fan of Seinfeld, obviously pre-Kramer having his uh, racist, uh, tirade in the comedy club or whatever and he had a thing called like a fake business called Kramerica Enterprises and I always thought that was really funny so at some point I decided to start calling my booking thing TRP Enterprises right? and that's what I was using for like everything at first it would be like TRP Enterprises Presents TRP this and then eventually I was like well I want to I want to branch it off so that there's the right path for the fanzine and then the other thing so I called it Enterprise Booking at first and then, and then I had the Enterprise Booking email address and then I was like, well, I could put it all under one umbrella and have like Enterprise Hardcore 
be like the right path, the record label, and the booking thing. You know, that was probably 2002 because you did that around the time when we were roommates. And I remember, and this was probably partially my influence at the time, maybe not, because I went to school for illustration and advertising, and I probably pitched you, hey, do like like a branding type thing. Because we, are, if anyone has seen any of the old flyers from any old Enterprise Hardcore shows, which I know you, you've put up on Instagram before, so people can go back and look, we made like sort of um, a header for every flyer, so they were always consistent. Because Steve Titus used to do that same thing, and I know like the New Year's Day, uh, the New Year's Day shows in Syracuse were like that. So my pitch to you, I, I remember telling you, is let's have this logo, and it was kind of like these block letters at the top said enterprise hardcore and then you had me design the logo and if people haven't seen the uh the logo it's also the logo for your podcast we kind of reused uh, and made kind of a new version of that logo which is kind of this funny version of you that was kind of what i made it and that with a big old mustache because that was kind of the joke at the time and you had the the fest called stash fest with the turntables so it was a little bit of hip-hop which kind of represented you so we made that as your logo, put that at the top, and then Enterprise Hardcore. So I think from there, that's kind of when you decided that's when you changed the name of the label too, right? Is that how that all came about? The label thing, we I guess we could have talked about that with the label, but that was actually more, a lot of this was Roses Are Red because they were like more serious band and they were going to start touring full time and they wanted to sign to a real label eventually. We had the logo with the DJ with the X's on his hands and the mustache, and they were kind of like not opposed to being straight edge, but they were just kind of like, if we could take the X's off of his hands to not make it look so... Uh... If you look at the two releases, you can tell it's different, I'm pretty sure. Well, you can't see it. It's so small. I mean, maybe that was part of the thing was just make it really small. This one, I don't see maybe. it at all. But they, this so... I don't see it at all on. It's not on... The, uh, the Nobody Cares, which is the first one. The Roses Are Red CD, it's so small. Maybe I did take it off his hands, but I'm, this thing is like an eighth of an inch. I mean, that is tiny. You can't really even see if it has the X's or not. Well, so I'm pretty sure they had suggested that, though. I could be wrong. But then I don't know if they suggested switching the name, too, but I agreed because they were like, you know the the blather sky thing's cool but it's a it's kind of hard to pronounce and b like a, you know a more serious name would be cool for the label and that's one like i i had a feeling with them like if i would have kept doing the label it would have been pretty successful at least for a little while you know because those last couple releases definitely you know but, but you know getting back to the original thing so it was definitely a lot of money lost booking shows like I've, i i i i wish i would have kept a ledger um again that's another wrestling reference uh jim cornette he like that dude for wrestling he kept like a notebook of literally everything and i wish i would have done something like that like i don't think anybody did that with hardcore that would have been really cool for somewhere to have like all these different notes from like different things that happened in hardcore but what i'm getting at is like i remember like specific dollar amounts where i lost or made there was only a couple of times where i made more than a couple hundred dollars on our show like there was uh maybe two times where i'm well no three if i include like booking a bigger show with somebody else where i made more than two or three hundred dollars but there was definitely more than two or three times where I lost more than that much. Like, I can remember at least one time, uh, one of the Stash Fest where I lost $800, which now, I mean, obviously now having a kid, that would suck, but now $800 doesn't seem like as much as it did back then, you know? 
like back then $800 was like holy fuck you know like um the amount of money I was making working in restaurants back then definitely was not very much like minimum wage now is probably twice what it was uh in 2002 or 2003 you know so I wasn't making very much money so when I would lose like $800 like I would have to sell some records take some money out of the distro or some of the money I had set aside to put out uh like a say a building on fire cd or a miles between us cd some of that money then had to be taken out and put back into a show like i lost and then, and then a lot of times there's bands i didn't even like there's other bands that i i mean i lost i think both times i booked mastodon i lost money you know some of these was probably me not negotiating the best deal with their agents but at the same time like aside from like Hatebreed and uh a couple other bands i never paid any bands more than like and again, at the time, things are a lot different now, but most bands were getting paid like at most like $500, maybe 750 My whole thing was, I guess I always thought that a lot of these shows were going to be a lot bigger than they were. Like there's an American Nightmare show that I booked at the Penny Arcade with like, yeah, with like them and Miles Between Us and Striking Distance, Death Threat, and Bad Business. And I remember even walking around that night and I don't think the dude from the Penny Arcade lied to me about it, you know, but I mean, it, it's possible, but... I thought there was more than 130 people there. It just seemed like it, you know, and that's what ended up being the, the amount of paid people. And I lost like probably 300 bucks that night, you know? And that's like, if you think about all these legendary, you know, shows or whatever, like these influential bands and I lost money on probably half of them, you know, like the only bands that I can tell you, that I definitely never lost money on were like Bane, you know, Thursday, you know, but there's a lot of bands that I definitely lost money on. So, um, but that, that, that I guess the other side of the coin was the amount of money I lost on those shows would have been spent going to like Syracuse or Buffalo to see that kind of show. Instead, I was able to bring it here. You're not driving around in a Corvette. I mean, you're putting that money into other things. You're seeing bands, you're putting out records. So if anyone ever had that misconception, they're nuts. They just need to know you and know that you care about hardcore and that's where your, your money went. So here's my follow-up question for you on that. I mean, obviously we're in the middle of a global pandemic and we really can't do anything. We can barely go get our own groceries, but I'm looking to the future and hoping we get a vaccine and that our world is going to semi come back to normal and we can have hardcore shows again. Do you feel as though you want to kind of go back and and book some shows again? Or are you done with that? You just want to go to shows and stage dive or, or where are you now? Well, Chromags, Agnostic Front, Madball, Gorilla Biscuits, and Converge. I know Converge is like a wild card. There's only fit with those other four bands, but those are the five bands that I never booked. Gorilla Biscuits doesn't really count because they technically weren't reunited yet when I stopped booking shows, like the first time I stopped booking shows, but I'm throwing them in there now because they're, they're an active band, which I guess you could throw a lot of other bands in there, so I'll take them out and put the other four bands in. But either way... Those bands, whichever ones you want to mention, I'm not, I never got a chance to book any of those bands, so it'd be cool to book at least Madball and Agnostic Front because those, those bands have been active, you know what I mean? So right. um, I'm not in any hurry to, to book a hardcore show. Like If it takes two years to have another one, I'm fine with that. I don't know if I'll yeah. stage dive again, but I, I probably will. I'm but, glad you answered that part. But my whole thing that I'd want to do first if we do a show and I'm putting this out there now 
uh, is we should do like a really big local show once the capacity is such that we could do something at like an anthology type place, like a big show. You know what I mean? Like get you guys. It'd have to be like a holiday thing to have you guys play, obviously, or something, you know. But like, I feel like you guys. I don't know if you guys have you guys ever played with Sirens and Sailors? Because I feel like that'd be a that'd be a dope show, you know. Yeah, I mean, I've I know at least two guys in the yeah. band, uh, Jim and I'm blanking on what the singer's name is, but he's a great kid too. Kyle, right? What's his name? Is that Kyle? Kyle? Yeah. yeah, great kid. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I feel like that would be dope. The weight we carry. You know, the weight we carry, all due respect to you, but the weight we carry is probably like my favorite current local band. You know what I mean? So. I get it. But those three bands, it would definitely be cool to get a show like that. Oh, also, my buddies, uh, I work with one of them, and, and the other one's my barber. Uh, Nightmares, you know, there's, there's, there's some good diverse bands around here. So it would definitely be cool to do some shows. And then, obviously, there's other bands that it would be cool to bring here, too. So uh, I guess the, the, the short answer is that, yeah, I definitely want to book shows again. I'm not sure what capacity, but I, I definitely think the local thing that I'm talking about right now would be would be a really cool thing for us to try to all kind of collectively do, whether it's a benefit for some cause or, you know, just a way for some local bands to kind of put some money together and, and you know, start playing shows again. But again... I'm not in a hurry to do that. So I have a couple of fun questions that this is actually going to lead right into. You're going to enjoy this. Part of this you know is coming and part you don't. So day one of, of your hypothetical show you're booking is current Rochester hardcore bands that exist right now. That's day one. So here's day two of our hypothetical stash fest, okay, which is your old uh, fest that you used to do. Here's day two, okay. Wide open for any bands to reunite any Rochester hardcore, it's got to be Rochester hardcore. What five bands would you put on the list for all-time Rochester hardcore bands to come back and play day two? So you said day one. Now do day two. Who would be playing that show? Five bands? Pick what five would you want on that bill? You guys are hearing Nooch stealing my thunder with uh, any band, any era. And it's funny because I was thinking about if you would ask me this question earlier tonight that I'd like to put a Rochester spin on it. So I'm glad that you already kind of gave me that option. So, all right. So this is actually a pretty easy one for me. Uh, obviously, Stand Fast and Billy on Fire, one and two. One thing that people might not realize about me, uh, my favorite local hardcore band probably of all time is uh, Dawn of War. So they're obviously on there. Uh, so we got two more. Um, more. Oh, dude, uh, again, going back to our original conversation about how hardcore and punk are one and the same, and if I say hardcore, I mean punk, and if I say punk, I mean hardcore, uh, so the Dents, the Dents would definitely be on there. The fifth band, you know, you might not consider them hardcore, you might consider them hardcore, but I, they definitely were a part of the hardcore scene, and they were very influential on me, uh, A Death Between Seasons. So yeah, Standfast, Billy on Fire, Dawn of War, The Dents, and Death Between Seasons. And what's interesting about that show is that it would bridge the gap completely for me. Well, mostly completely, because The Dents started in like 97, 98, which is when I started getting going really, really hard into this stuff. Um, and then Dawn of War, uh, basically, I've always kind of looked at them, and now the way we carry as dudes who like kind of carry the torch for the kind of shit that I was representing. And like, Dawn of War was pretty much the first, them and Borrowed Time were like the first two bands to really come around in Rochester that really, for, for when I was into hardcore, I'm sure there were bands before that, but like 
in my era that like played like that New York, you know, like you kind of did with Last Kiss a little bit too, but like yeah. Borrowed Time and Dawn of War, it was on some like, you know, working class fucking, you know. So yeah, those would be the five bands though. So the right where this goes to is uh, my zinger question that I always request that you ask your guests every time is the Mount Rushmore question. Can you complete the Mount Rushmore? Who were the four? Can you do it? Well, you know, it's actually funny because there's a band that I left off because, again, with A Death Between Seasons, you might not consider this band hardcore. I'm going to start right off with somebody who has played in hardcore bands but is also definitely well more well-known, completely more well-known for metal and stuff like that. Uh, Eric Burke is definitely on the Mount Rushmore of Rochester, 100%. Um, another person who, again, is not going to be as much known for hardcore, but he's the one who got me into this kind of stuff, and he's the one who kept Rochester music alive for many years, uh, Rob Filardo. He saw a gorilla... So yeah, I would put Eric Burke and... Rob Florido on there. If I was going to put a singer from Rochester, there's there's two that come to mind. So, but the one that's going to definitely make it is uh, Rory. Uh, but the other one that, that the other one that I if I could do, do like a second one or like a you know like a best of type you know whatever just didn't just didn't quite make it. Uh, Chris Pogue. I think there's enough rock that we can carve another one to and the right if we have. To. I would I would definitely do a, a, a honorable mention for Chris Pogue though if I was gonna just if I was gonna pick one singer I'd pick Rory, but if I was gonna pick two I'd put Chris Pogue on there too because uh, stage presence and you know just 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 he yeah, he has everything so it's kind of hard to put you because you're not you you I don't think of you from well I guess you've been in Rochester for so many years you know but I think of you as I, as, I appreciate that. Um, it's I'm sort of split between two cities. It's I think of you as more like Buffalo, Newark, you know. Yeah. Uh, Building on Fire is definitely the Mount Rushmore of Newark hardcore, though. But I we'll, I, do, we'll do a lot of Newark talk on the Building on Fire episode. So there's definitely definitely those three, and then I feel like I I probably would put you on somewhere though because you've definitely had a hand in a lot of noteworthy Rochester, not just bands. The crazy thing too is. Like, I had kind of forgotten you had that label for a while, and then, like, it's come up in a lot of these interviews, you know? And then all, all the layout stuff, all the layout stuff, not only just for me, but just for a lot of other people you did over the years, you know, and, and I've still been able to do, you know? And I'm still playing in bands. What's my problem? I'm trying to think of other other people that either either I, I, I would I would could strongly consider or that just didn't quite make it. Oh, uh, 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 Jim Callahan, you know? Well, Yes, and he's good too because he kind of bridges that uh, that older, uh, not older, but uh, the group that kind of came before me when I was there. So well, the thing that's great about Jim Callahan too is, as long as I've known him too, like he still has that same. And uh, actually, another person who definitely goes on Mount Rushmore. Not I'm thinking of people who have like great energy and, and have it after so many years. Patrick Doyle, uh, 100% uh, Rochester hardcore uh, Mount Rushmore, just had the the best energy. And, you know, I, I, every time you would talk to him about music, you know, you could tell how passionate he was about it. And so, yeah, no, I, I don't know how many people I can put on there. Is it four? I, I know I would put, I know I would put uh, Doyle on there, obviously. And then Eric Burke would have to be on there. 
Um, and then the rest of them could be interchangeable. But those two, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is when you think of Rochester music, the one of the first people that should come to mind should be Eric Burke. You know what I mean? And, yes. then, and then when you think of like, in my capacity, like just somebody who's passionate about music and goes to shows, I would think about Doyle because he was there. Like, granted, he wasn't he wasn't like as huge a part of what we were doing, but he was definitely like down with like a lot of the New York hardcore stuff and the and a lot of the punk stuff and and like all the like as an adult like Negative Approach, like all the the really good shows that I went to here. Like, he's a big memory of that. Uh, and then, uh, as I referenced in the Mark Miller podcast, the uh, the Judge Show in Buffalo too. So. And uh, even when I went down when I went down to New York City, uh, Doyle was definitely there for that too. So, longest war played that show. I was really happy to be part of that show. That was a, that was a lot of fun. Uh, I have two more questions, then we can wrap it up. So this won't be a, a four hour episode. We'll uh, <laughs> think we could probably do it under the the, the two hour mark. Um, so I, I mean, I sort of know the answer to this question, but I think people are going to want to know this: is how did you? first decide that this was the right way to go and to do a podcast i mean i love it i listen to every episode and as soon as they're out you text me and i blast right through it every time i love it how did you decide that i can try to remember it was kind of a combination of a couple of things and i think anybody who either has either listened to this episode or, or talks to me knows that it's, it's never a simple answer with me obviously um but I had thought about doing podcasts for many years uh, with like daily fantasy sports because, you know, I thought that it could help help my game a little bit, bit and it would just be fun to do, but I never really wanted to do it. Um, and then when I got into this car accident last year, I started thinking more about it. And I was like, it'd be cool to do, but I don't want it to be like a woe is me, like oh I just almost died, so I'm I'm doing this like thing to try to, you know. Um, but then the pandemic happened, and and you and I kind of reconnected, and I was like. Posting the flyers, yeah, I was posting the flyers, and I think you, you, you even said it. It was actually you, you and Sketchy Dave, which I had already obviously thought about doing it before because I had talked about doing podcasts, and I had talked with Sketchy about podcasts before this. Um, but you oh, guys, that's right? That was the transition because of his Bills podcast, yeah, and that sort of transitioned to you doing a, a hardcore podcast. Yeah. that's right. Him and I talked about it, and like you know, down the road maybe him and I'll still try and do like a network type thing too, because that would be kind of fun to do. Um, I want to end with this, and you talked about it a little bit, um, but I know this is something that I really like that you've included in all of the different interviews that you have is that you've, you've brought up Black Lives Matter, and you sort of added in a little political touch, which I like, because that's very common and hardcore in general, you know, people being sort of mindful of what's going on in the world, so I know you've been very active, and uh, you'd go onto Instagram, and you would you'd go Instagram live with some of the, uh, the protests for and against black lives matter. So I guess my question is, are you happy with the way the election turned out and what do you see happening from here on out with uh, the whole black lives matter and equality movement? Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm happy that, well, we're hoping that Trump's going to be out of here in January. I'm happy for that, but Who's to say, you know, I mean, Biden was a part of the Obama administration, so I guess he has that going for him, but I don't need to tell anybody the flaws that Biden has. We've all seen them. We all know about them. I definitely lean closer to Democrats than I do Republicans, but I also don't uh, think that either side really cares that much about you or I or probably even knows who you or I are. 
I think as far as Black Lives Matter goes, that's definitely a necessary movement that should keep moving forward. No, I mean, it's good to see Trump's out, um, are going to be out. Uh, if it wasn't a pandemic, uh, for those that aren't aware, in 2009, I went down to D.C. when Obama got inaugurated. Uh, I saw the Beastie Boys the night before. I walked down to the White House the next morning, as close as I could get, which was probably about a mile away. I was over by the, the monument or whatever. Um, I would go down again for this. Not as much because I'm, I'm for Biden as much as I'm against Trump. You know, at that time, I was, I was stoked to see Obama going in, stoked to see Bush out, you know, but now it's more of, I don't think we're going to be quite as, uh, the, the hope, the feeling of hope and looking forward to the future with Obama. I don't think it's going to be the same with Biden. You know what I mean? So, but it's definitely better than Trump, I guess, which is still the lesser of two, but. Yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> It's a hard thing down here, too, because, I, I mean, I live kind of in the southern tier uh, south of Rochester, people that are listening, and it's I'm in farm country, so uh, not everybody, but the majority of, of the area around here is all red and uh, Trump supporters, so I am definitely the minority where I live right now, so it's been hard. Anyway, um, let's wrap things up here. I think this is really good. I think people are really getting kind of an idea of um, what you're all about, some of the stuff that you've accomplished. And uh, I know it's not everything. We probably could go for four hours, but uh, I think this is pretty good. And we can always do a, a part two if you'd like to do a part two. That completes Rob Antonucci's interview with me. Special thanks to Rob Antonucci for coming up with the idea for this episode. As always, thanks to my family for the never-ending support. The next few episodes will feature interviews with Daryl Taberski, Nick Lemesis, Chris Pogue, Brian Rao, as well as a few other people. As always, check us out on the web at EnterpriseHardcorePodcast.com and follow us on Instagram at EnterpriseHardcorePodcast. See everyone real soon, and stay safe.